Hey everybody, welcome to Regardless, You Got This. I'm your host, Skylar Sorkin. Say hello to the syllabus for your 20-something soul. The syllabus you never received in college is finally making an appearance. This podcast will inspire you to create your very own 20-something syllabus, ultimately guiding you towards your sole purpose, regardless of self-doubt and what others think. As your host, I'm your human connector. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to my superhuman network, a network of 20-something-year-olds, as well as a sprinkle of some older ones who have truly enriched my life by sharing tools that have helped them to navigate their 20s in order to get closer to their dreams. These relationships and conversations have had a deep impact on my personal and spiritual life, allowing me to create my very own syllabus. On each episode, one superhuman will share their breakthroughs, aha moments, as well as the resources that have helped them to find peace, knowledge, energy, and success in their 20s. At the end of each episode, a guest speaker will leave you with several syllabus steps and homework to practice and embody in between each month's episode. I challenge you to digest these stories and allow them to help you curate your very own syllabus, whether that's related to career, personal development, spirituality, love, you name it. We're in this process together, working together towards creating a personal syllabus that is unique to our souls. At the end of each month, we will have a new written step direction, and a conscious goal to work on. So when we get to the end of a regardless season, we have seasoned. Alrighty, let's get to work. Are we ready to get to it? Yeah, do you have like, uh, are you going to start with a theme song? Ladies and gentlemen, Skylar Sorkin from San Diego. Oh my gosh, I should do the voiceover for the beginning of your podcast. You should! <laughs> Hi, superhumans. Welcome back to another regardless episode I cannot explain how excited I am for this conversation. It is my absolute honor to introduce you all to a very close family friend of mine and a not-so-20-something-year-old, Dr. Dan Diamond. In the high-stake, high-pressure world that we live in, Dr. Dan Diamond shows leaders how to rally their teams to make a difference when it matters the most. Very cool fact. Dan was the director of the medical tourage unit at the New Orleans Convention Center following Hurricane Katrina and led the first in medical response teams to some of the greatest disasters of our times. With his unique experiences in disasters and medicine, he delivers interactive, unforgettable presentations that leave a lasting impact, as well as work with one-on-one with people that want to excel during times of intense change. Dr. Diamond is not only an expert in performance under pressure, problem solving under pressure, change management, employee resilience, employee engagement, but he is also a motivational and TEDx speaker, an author, mentor, as well as a coach. I feel beyond lucky to call him family, as well as one of my close mentors. Dr. Dan Diamond, welcome to Regardless. 
Thank you, my friend. What a pleasure to be able to hang out with you today. <laughs> so I've been like, you know, I do a, a good amount of podcasts, but this is the one I'm most excited about because oh I believe gosh. in what you're doing and your enthusiasm is so dang contagious. Hey, you forgot the best part. Yeah. You know, the best part is I, I made my way through medical school as a street mime. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. Like that's a big deal. And so I, we could do this whole interview as a mime if you want. It's quiet. You do all the talking. I think this would have to turn into a a video podcast, but I do remember you showing me some mime little, you know, tactics. Yeah. It was a good gig. You know, this was like 40 years ago. I was making 25 bucks an hour on the street. That's crazy. Yeah. Set my own hours, no taxes. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but yeah, (laughs) like, yeah, it was fun. I had a great time and I learned a lot about people. Yeah. You know, as a, as a mime, you start becoming very aware of nonverbal communication, obviously, uh, in both directions. And I, and I wasn't one of those guys that just stood there like a statue. I was actually telling stories. But yes, I am just so thrilled to have you here. Um, do you feel younger by being on this podcast? <laughs> well, every time I show up and say, I think I'm just a young guy trapped in an old guy's body, everybody goes, no, really, dude, you are old. No, no come on. Not. You are not old. No, I, I refuse to grow up. You know, I mean, I travel with a rubber chicken. This, yeah. is, this is a big deal. So this rubber chicken, not this one. I have another one that's in my bag that sticks out. Just the head sticks out. <laughs> and, you know, people are like, uh, excuse me, sir, did you know you have a rubber chicken? Stick? Yeah, of course. You got you to gotta leave the head out so it can breathe. Does he have a name? Yeah, he does. So funny. All good. Awesome. Well, let's get to it. Um, let's get into the juice. Um, and you know, I clearly remember us chatting in San Diego and me mentioning that I was starting a podcast and, um, we were just connecting about wanting to work together. Um, and we didn't really know what that meant, but perhaps you coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences and what got me so excited was really how excited you were to be a part of my vision And I remember so clearly you knowing exactly what you wanted to talk about. And that was trauma. And at first I thought to myself, trauma, like how do we talk about trauma? Can I fully relate to this? Will my followers relate to this? And really after marinating about it, um, thinking, yes, we all can relate to it. And trauma is actually really relevant in people's lives. And I think especially to millennials and Gen Zs and 20-something-year-olds. But the reason why I was so scared to talk about trauma, trauma is really a word that I don't think we talk about too much. Um, Trauma is a word or a feeling that people tend to ignore, push away, and try to really do everything and anything to distract ourselves to not talk about it, not think about it, not admit it, or even, you know, admit to past or current traumatic experiences. So after tons of reflection, to me, trauma can really be anything from personal challenges to adversities to chronic stress. And that's just kind of my personal definition. Um, But Dr. Diamond, the expert, what does trauma mean to you? Well, I mean, just like you said, there are so many different ways that we could, so many angles we could talk about. Um, you know, I think for me, where 
this this journey to understand this stuff ha- happened in New Orleans. So I'm running this medical triage unit, and we're outside of the convention center. We have six helicopters at a time landing around us, blowing blowing everywhere, everything to smithereens. We were being protected by the 82nd Airborne dudes, and they have their machine guns because there were like knuckleheads trying to mess with the relief workers and shooting at the relief workers. So we were being protected by the stinking army. Wow. Those guys were, by the way, they were incredibly cool. Talk about really? people that, that serve, that don't complain. They never said, man, it's hot out here. Nothing. They were just like, what can we do, sir? What do you need, sir? It was, a oh, man, I have huge respect. But, you know, I, I was looking around at this and watching what was happening from the media's perspective. And it's really fascinating. One of the, one of the key things that I take away from our conversation today, I hope, is the power of asking better questions. Mm. So Anderson Cooper, and I like Anderson Cooper, and we had some great conversations during Katrina. Um, Anderson kept asking the question, why are there so many victims? You know, we knew we were going to have a lot of victims. In October, the year before Katrina, if you go back and look in National Geographic magazine, they wrote an article about what would happen if a tornado, I mean, if a hurricane hit New Orleans and the levee broke. Mm. It was like a a play-by-play of what happened, except in that article, 50,000 people died. But we had 50,000 body bags on pallets. The media didn't know that, but we had 50,000 body bags. So everybody's asking, why are there so many victims? Why are there so many victims? I asked a different question. I asked the question, why is it that some of these people don't become victims? Mm. They've lost everything. They've lost their homes, their family members, their cars, all their belongings. They lost everything, and they're still not victims. How's that happen? Because I don't know what would happen to me if I lost everything. You know, I don't know what, I'm having a really bad day if I lose my phone. Yeah. If you lose everything, you just sit on the curb and like uh, slump into a thing. And and I mean, that's, so for me, it was a personal challenge of, I want to understand how these people think just in case I'm ever in a bad situation. Absolutely. You know, so that was, that was the beginning of it. The other thing that I think is fascinating is that the media always focuses on the negative. And I had this conversation with Anderson Cooper when I was in, um, in Haiti after the earthquake. I said, hey, Matt, I think we should do a different kind of show. Instead of running around all the time saying, why are there so many victims? Why don't we do a show about the people that don't become victims? about the heroes. Why don't we find the ones that are thriving in the midst of all this stuff that's going on and celebrate them and figure out how they're doing it. As a society run to the television or YouTube or whatever the medium is, we run to that stuff to watch people that are suffering. And I think we do it because then we can say, well, I thought my day was bad, but look at that. That really sucks to be them. At least, I'm, at least my life's not that bad. It's kind of like if you don't want to clean your garage, you just watch hoarders. Then you go, yeah, man, I thought my garage was bad, but look at this guy's <laughs> garage. Man, I, fortunately, I just sit on the couch and watch some more football. Yeah. If, if you start showing stories of people who, who rocked it, who became unstoppable, mm. that makes me uncomfortable because then I got to step my game up. Like, why am I complaining about this stuff? I need to step my game up. So that was kind of a big aha for me of, the power of asking a better question. 
How is it that some of these people don't become victims? How is it that they thrive? How do they keep their head in the game? How do they keep pressing on? I don't know that I would because I haven't been in their shoes. Mm -hmm. But some of the stuff that I've learned from them has been life-changing for me. It's not easy work. It's hard work when you start trying to figure out how how in the world are you going to keep your head in the game when the whole world's crashing in around you. Um, Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of the basic. Let's, Let's ask a better question. How do we become kick butt unstoppable? And especially in today's world, there's just so much shit going on. And it's hard for us. I think just the media, TV and social media, it can tell a very different story. When you have an opportunity to have power over what you're able to take in, either watching TV or through your feed, I try to really follow people who empower me rather than having people in my feed who maybe make me feel insecure or are negative. And I try to follow people who make me feel inspired and allow me to get out of my comfort zone. And I think that's something that needs to be more accepted. Yeah, it doesn't happen by accident, though. No. Have you seen Social Dilemma? Yes, I've, I've seen that. Oh, my gosh. Awesome. So all, they're always A-B testing to see what will keep us online. And fear and anger will keep us online more than inspiration. And wow, i got to get my act together. i they're, they're, I got to step my game up. That doesn't tend to, to make us go, oh, i got to read more about that. I gotta. But what if it did? You know, the algorithms will go, oh, you're actually looking for more positive stuff. We'll start feeding you more positive stuff. And then your world becomes more positive. But if you're going, oh, this whole world sucks, this is miserable. It's like, I mean, the one, I, it, here's what I know. I know I'm an old dude now. I'm 64. You're not but old. But I feel like I'm, like I'm <laughs> about 23 trapped in an old guy's body. Yes. But if, if I'm looking at your generation, the thing that I see in your generation that my generation didn't have their act together on is you guys are looking at, your, at the world and saying, I want to live a life that has a meaning and a purpose, mm-hmm. and I want to be about something bigger than me. My generation was like, I just want a great job. I want to be able to provide for my family. It was a pretty narrow, I mean, yeah, I went into medicine. I wanted to help people and all that stuff. But overall, there's this, I just got to get a good job. I got to take care of my family. Your generation is like, as a whole, is going, oh, no, this is, we want to be about making a difference in the world, making the world a better place, taking better care of the planet. We want to empower people, give people a voice. I mean, you guys have got some noble stuff going on that will get derailed if we ask the wrong questions, it'll easily get derailed if we start going into um, othering people. Well, you know how those people are over there. You could be on the conservative side, you could be on the liberal side. If you're looking at those other people and going, yeah, those are a bunch of knuckleheads, they don't know anything. You know how those white people are, you know how those black people are, you know how those straight people are, you know how those queer people are. Now nah, we need to be, we need to come alongside each other. If we really want to make a difference in the world, we have to be willing to stand next to people that are radically different than we are. Mm-hmm. So when I look at the people that made a difference in New Orleans, and when, in fact, every disaster I've responded to, and I've been all over the world for disasters throughout my career, the big separator had to do with two things, two big questions. 
and and these are like if you're listening to this right now and i always picture we're sitting in a coffee shop and it's you yeah. and me and one other person and three of us having a conversation this is the deal like get the napkin out and write this on the napkin yeah. <laughs> question number one are you powerful or powerless number two are you going to be, choose to be a giver or a taker mm. Because the victims that we saw, and we did see a good number of victims, were the powerless takers. It was all about them. And when I'm doing keynotes and stuff, sometimes I'll make the comment that victims suck. And everybody looks at me like, oh, dude, you're a disaster dog. You can't say victims suck. <laughs> I love that. But they do. They will suck your resources. They'll suck your energy. They'll take your people. They'll take everything. Just like <laughs> sucking it out of you because they see themselves as powerless. They hoard during disasters, and it's all about them because they're powerless and they take. Yeah, well, there's I, I, I see this as a four-quadrant model. Lower left are the victims, the powerless takers. Okay. Lower right are the powerless givers, and they're the bystanders. Can you explain a little bit more? Yeah, their heart's in the right place, and they're saying... Um, wow, somebody should do something for these poor people. They want to give, but they don't think they can. And they can come up with all kinds of reasons. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too tall. I'm too short. I'm too skinny. I don't have any education. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. So, oh, come on. Bystanders will stand around. They don't have a story. They don't leave a legacy. When I'm doing my keynote presentations, I show a picture of a Polaroid, a blank Polaroid picture. They have no story. It's just, you know, that the... They, they have no story. It's just this blank slate because they stay on the sidelines. So the, that's the lower right. That's the powerless givers. And the upper left, the powerful takers, those are the controllers. They're nasty. They're mean. These are the people that were shooting at the relief people. Wow. Who does that? Why would you do that? You shoot what, at was the their, what was their reasoning? Oh my gosh. I mean, I've got crazy face stories that I tell when I'm doing my keynotes about people that were up on the building shooting at the people in the rescue boats because they weren't coming to get them first. What is that going to do? What's well, a great question. I mean, I always throw in this one liner of those guys never met my dad because my dad said, if you ever need to be rescued by people in a boat, don't freaking shoot at them. Like, what? No. <laughs> Why would you do that? Were they angry? Oh, yeah. And they were like, you know, actually shooting at the people they were dependent upon for their own rescue. So I'm looking at this going, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen anybody do. And I was super judgmental. I was like pissed off, judgmental. You guys are idiots. You deserve to never be rescued. Did I just say that? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the raw (laughs) of me. And then one day I was sitting just minding my own business. Did you ever have this happen where... There's a little voice in your head and it gets out. Yes, by accident. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So I'm sitting there, I have mind my own business, and this little voice says, Yo, hey, Dan Diamond, you ever shoot a look at your wife? I said, Yeah. You ever shoot a comment at your kids? Oh, yeah, I've done that one too. You ever shoot an email to people that work for you and it was all about you? Yeah, I did that. So, oh, so you don't shoot bullets, you just shoot looks, comments, and emails of people. And I had to go, oh, dang, man. Sometimes I use that controller mindset. Yeah. Sometimes I use the victim mindset. Sometimes I use the bystander mindset. My favorite mindset, What? which one do you think is my favorite? Probably the givers. 
No, 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 no. Oh, my favorite, the one that's the most delicious is the Tell vi- me. The victim. Oh, I, I thought we don't like victim. victims. Oh, I, yeah, but these are not four different types of people we're talking about. It's different mindsets. Okay. And when Tell I me. get squished, I just love that victim mindset. Oh, honey, I said, hard day today. It's tough. Had to hang out with Skylar. She asked tough questions. I'm so <laughs> Got a headache. Don't feel very good. My wife will go, oh, honey, you go ahead and sit on the couch. I'll do the dishes. I go, yeah, that'd be good. Thanks. It's, it's like, what? It's so delicious, but it's so not rewarding. So the, the, the fourth mindset is the thriver mindset that says, mm-hmm. I have the power to make a difference, and I'm going to choose to give. So you can look at it. Okay, oh, right. what if you're 23 years old, yeah. and you see something, and you go, huh? What if, what if you're Malala? You know, what a great story. What a tragic story. She gets, the Taliban shoots her because she wants to go to school. But she becomes this, like, great voice for mm-hmm. educating females and change the world. She didn't wait till she was 50 years old to do that. She did it when she was a kid. Like, huh. So what happens if... If we get out of this mindset of, oh, there's nothing I can do. I'm just like, I'm, I'm only in my 20s. Well, forget that. We need people that are in their 20s because you guys have more energy and your feet don't hurt like mine do. <laughs> that you know, is very true. Stuff. And we, we need to put our heads together and say, what could happen if we got some people together and we said, we actually want to make a difference. You know, and there's stuff going on. You know, you could just say, all right, what about the elderly people in my community that can't get out so much now because of COVID? What if we organize people and we get their groceries for them? What if, you know, their families can't come and visit oftentimes? How about if we got together and just came over and we read books together? Read stories out loud. What a great thing. We could read a novel together with one of our neighbors. I mean, there's so many things that we could do if we start thinking, I have the power to make a difference. It's not about me. I want to choose to be a giver, and I want that stuff that energy to flow from me out into the people I interact with. That's, that's a game changer. I mean, that was the key. That was the big aha when I realized the thing that separated the victims from the thrivers at Katrina was the victim said, I don't have any power and it's all about me. And the thriver said, oh, I have power. And Do it's not about me. Do you think the thrivers... Do you think they were always like that? Do you think they always had a thriving mindset? Or do you think that this was the one moment that really, maybe they surprised themselves, that they were able to show up and That's step up? That's an outstanding time, question. Yeah. That's a hugely important question. I'm not a thriver every day. So it's not, I don't stay, I'm Dan Diamond, I'm a thriver. No, I mean, I'm Dan Diamond, I'm a victim sometimes. Ask my wife or... Um, but what, what I'm getting really good at, because I'm paying attention to it, is what is my internal conversation saying? And can't I recognize what each one of those mindsets sound like? The bystander saying, gosh, somebody should do something. When I hear that, I go, oh, yeah, hi. Welcome to the conversation, Mr. Bystander. Yeah. <laughs> or, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. What about me? I go, oh, yeah, the victim. Haven't seen you for a minute. Welcome back. Welcome to the show. And the controller is saying, screw you, you will do what I say. And when, I, when I, I, I'm getting really good at picking up on that, 
Victor Frankl is one of my all-time heroes. He wrote a book that ought to be required reading. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Man's he was an Austrian meaning. psychiatrist captured by the Nazis, spent three years in the concentration camps. They killed his wife. He lost a bunch of family members. He said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our growth and our freedom. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he said that, that no one can take away we always have the right to choose how we're going to respond in any given situation. It's the last of human freedoms. No one can take away your right to choose how you're going to respond in any given situation. So if that's the case, it always comes back to the two, the two questions you just wrote in your napkin. Am I powerful or powerless? Am I a taker or a giver? I get to choose. Nobody can take those two choices away from me no matter what. They can cut my arms and legs off, and I still get to choose how I'm going to respond. I could say I still have the power to make a difference. Yeah, it's you know? really in the power of the individual, and it's knowing that we have the decision to choose and decide how we show up every day. And I love how you're able to check in with yourself and have that internal conversation and, and using humor in that and welcoming those thoughts, not getting upset with yourself, but then choosing the direction that is in most alignment with your future self. Yeah, if you, what I've found, and it's taken me a while to figure this one out, which is why I'm really excited about your podcast. (laughs) If I can help somebody else figure this out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Bring it on. Um, You you know, this this idea of I get to choose how I'm going to respond and, and becoming aware of taking a moment to pause. And I learned this from our, our mutual friend, Danny Friedland, who just passed away, this idea of pause, notice, and choose. If I could just pause, notice which mindset I'm using, and then choose the one I want. You know, the, the, uh, one of the words that, and I love words, so I looked up the word fulfill, and fulfill came from the old English word fulfilling, which was the word that they used to describe the process of loading supplies on a ship for a voyage that was fulfilling but if being a victim's not fulfilling being a bystander's not being a controller's not being a thriver is so if i'm starting to go wow i'm really starting to feel kind of uh, empty mm. like my resources are down i'm feeling kind of burned out i'm going then I'm, that's just a backup alarm for me to go oh wait a minute i'm not fulfilled because I've made it all about me. I'm not fulfilled because I'm on the sideline as a bystander. <laughs> you know, I need to make that decision to move back into being a thriver again. And it's not a decision that's a once-a-day once decision. Sometimes it's 100 times a day. Uh, but can I pause and notice and choose and keep coming back to that, keep coming back to that, mm-hmm. and live a more fulfilling life? And it's work. It's a lot oh, it's, of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Being in a thriving mindset is obviously the most important, and that's probably what we want to achieve. But don't you think during these traumatic experiences and challenges that there needs to be proper time for someone to actually feel those emotions rather than ignoring them and going straight to a thriving mindset? Don't you think it's okay for someone to allow themselves to feel and cry and maybe even play the victim card, even if it's just for like a couple of hours? Do you think well, that's how about this? Or? I, think, I think it's a great question. If, if I'm not kind to myself, none of this work happens. Mm, okay. If I beat myself up and say, 
you jerk. You're ridiculous. Why are you doing the victim thing again? You're so stupid. You know this stuff. You wrote the book on this. I mean, it's like, what's wrong with you? If I do that, what do you think the chances are that my brain is going to say, hey, you should pause and notice and choose? No, it's not pause, notice, beat the crap out of myself and then choose. It's pause, notice with openness, kindness, and curiosity. Why am I, why am I feeling like the victim right now? Why am I hurting? You know, I mean, the, the whole thing of suffering, do I, the people that lost everything in New Orleans weren't walking around as these numb heroes. They were grieving. They had tremendous, tremendous loss. They were hurting for sure. But they were also saying, can I help you? Is there anything I could do to help? Can I get water for these people? Can I get some blankets for these people? I mean, in my TEDx talk, I did a, a talk about this guy named Augie. I'm not going to tell you the story because it's better if you go watch it because I can't tell it now as good as I did. Okay. I <laughs> I'll for sure tag it in the episode yeah, yeah, notes. Yeah. Yes. Great. It's a great story. Augie yeah. changed my life. It was a super cool dude. Super cool guy. It's about being um, open and living a loving life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and being loving towards myself. Because when I fail, if I beat myself about this, it's not helpful. I have to be willing to say, dude, you're suffering right now. Are you okay? I have these conversations. I got more than one voice in my head. I don't think I'm crazy, but I have complex conversations going on. Oh, I constantly, this is something I actually struggle with, is just nonstop internal chatter. Yeah. And it gets pretty exhausting. But once you're able to really tune into that and listen you really get to understand how much negative talk is coming in and channeling and versus positive and can be really sad because I've noticed this past year that most of my self-talk is really negative. And who oh, yeah. is that helping? I'm the one that has to live with myself. I'm the one that's listening to these thoughts. But again, we get to make that decision. We get to choose which question we're going to hold on to. And what are the next steps? So, you know, the next time I'm in a challenging position, normally I would probably go straight to victim. So let's say I didn't close the deal or maybe I didn't get a raise. I would look at myself or talk to myself and say, Sky, like what? What did you do wrong? What's wrong with you? Yeah. And then I would probably go into comparison mode where I'm comparing myself to other people or friends who are making, maybe making more money than I am at this point. And it's playing that victim card and beating yourself up rather than perhaps allowing yourself to pause, feel what you need to feel. So grieve what you need to grieve. And I typically will allow myself maybe a day to feel sad for myself and cry because for me, I'm a sensitive and emotional person. So sometimes it just feels good to let us huge sob out and just play sad music and get into like your emo state, but only allowing that state to happen for, I don't know, three hours or a day. And then the next day, getting back on the right track and getting into that thriving mindset of how can I give back? How can I become a better person? This is not my story. Um, and how can I turn it into a story that is really fulfilling for me and is really in alignment with who I want to become and is energizing? Yeah, and it is. There is this energy component to the whole thing. 
So I'm, right now I'm reading a book called The Gap and the Gain by Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan. Mm. And he talks about if you're always measuring yourself to the gap, like I want to be here, but I'm here, then you're always going to feel like you're not. Yeah. You're you're always feeling like there's a gap and you're not there and you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not whatever enough is you're not there. He said, if we turn and look the other way and measure the gain from where we started, then we can go, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, like today I designed a whole new model on how to coach teams. Now, I could look at that and go, yeah, but you didn't get the website done. You were going to upgrade, update the website. You didn't get that done. So, uh, you know, or I can look at that and go, that's a pretty freaking cool model that you came up with today, dude. You could sell the heck out of that thing. That's going to be great. It's going to be really helpful. It's going to help a lot of people. Good job. So, you know, even, even if you don't get the job that you applied for, you can look at that and go, what's the learning? And you can turn the learning into a win. Mm-hmm. Saying, I learned two things out of this and I went, man, I'm so much smarter today than I used to be. I mean, I asked myself the question of how much different would my life be if I was born smart and then got stupid? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I want to be continuously in a learning mode Man, I'm reading all the time. I'm like, how do I learn more? And then when I fall flat on my face, can I show myself the grace to say, I love you, dude. And, um, you just learned something. You had to pay. You had to pay for this one. It's a little more expensive, maybe, than in your college, but it's a lesson yeah. you probably won't forget. And I think that mindset is awesome because that's really relatable to everyone in the entire world right now because of COVID and the loss and tragedy that we've all been through. This maybe it's been two years, right? Yeah, almost two years. Yeah. How can we now look at this experience and the pain and? the loneliness that we've experienced and how can we look at it from like a positive mindset and what have we learned? I've learned so much about myself and I've accomplished so much due to the pandemic. So if we're able to come together and celebrate our wins rather than our losses, that's pretty big. And I, that's probably very similar to, you know, your experience at Katrina. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this, we get to tell the story of our history. The reality is, is right here, right now. And this is, I mean, I just learned this from this book this week. Um, I get to tell my history. So how do I tell the story? Do I tell the story about this thing that happened and how catastrophic it was? Or do I tell myself and everybody else the story of this is what happened and here's what I learned. This is how I grew from this. It was a difficult time, but here's three major wins that came out of that. And I get to, I get to choose how I'm going to frame it. You know, Victor Frankl did that coming out of these concentration camps. And I'm, I'm sad that he suffered, but I'm also grateful that he suffered because if he hadn't suffered so tremendously, I would dismiss his advice is saying, well, you can talk about this stimulus and space and all that stuff, but dude, you have not lived my life. My life is tough. And I go, well, actually, your life's tougher than mine. You were in a concentration camp. They tortured you. They did all this stuff. And you still figured this stuff out of being purpose-driven, the importance of that, the stimulus response, that space, that nobody can take away your right to choose how you're going to respond. Those are some lessons that are worth passing on to other people and validated because it came from him. 
So, yeah, great, great book. That's so cool. That's really energizing for me. You know, if I, it's been a very traumatic year. A lot of things have happened um, for me. It's been a hard year and I feel like a lot of people are probably on the same page, but I could look up to Oprah or Jay Shetty or MLK or, you know, certain people that have been through an amount of stress and pain in their lives. When I'm going through a hard time, I'm able to look at these people and kind of relate my situation to them and, you know, say, yes, this is a really, really hard situation. But if I'm able to step up and go for it despite the fear and I'm growing for my future self, I will be closer to, you know, becoming an Oprah or a Jay Shetty or an MLK. Yeah, but, but we go back to what we started out talking about. If I look at those people and I say, well, I thought my life was bad. I guess, I guess my life's okay. I'm just going to sit on the couch, you know, and watch another episode of Hoarders. <laughs> That's not helpful. If I look mm-hmm. at those people and go, man, they suffered and look what they did. What would happen if I challenged myself to say, okay, do I have the pow- power or am I powerless? Am I going to be a giver or a taker? If I'm going to be a powerful giver, what does that look like right now? And the question that I keep asking myself over and over and over again, and frankly, I think your generation's more willing to ask this question than mm-hmm. my generation. My generation's just now starting to wake up to this. The big question is, what does unstoppable love look like right now? What's unstoppable love look like? You know, and I think about, what about in the workplace? You know, if you're, if you're in a job... Do you look at your boss as some nebulous person out there that has the power to say no? Or do you set up an appointment to go in and say, um, I was just wondering what's keeping you up at night. I'm not trying to butter you up, not looking for anything. I just want to know what's keeping you up at night because maybe I can help or maybe somebody in my network can help. And I care about awesome. you. I care about you. Like, who does that? Nobody walks into the CEO's office and says, hey, what, what's keeping you up at night and how can I help? You know, I'm just the entry clerk. I'm just the, you know, but I just care about you. If there's ever anything I can do or, you know, I got a whole bunch of friends. And if you're, you know, who knows what, what he or she is struggling with. It's like, you know, maybe they, maybe they're having problems with their 23-year-old. Yeah. You know, but but treating each other with, unstoppable love and showing up and saying, um, how can I help? I have the power to make a difference. I'm going to be a giver. Boom. Or I look at it and go, well, I'm just a housekeeper. What can I do? Oh man, come on. That ties into fearlessness. Yes. Because especially in our twenties, titles, job descriptions, the ladder of a company that tends to hold us back from stepping outside of our comfort zone and kind of crossing those boundaries in order to put ourselves in front of the CEO and have those conversations. Where even, I know 20 something year olds who don't even have those conversations with their close family members. So I think it really starts from a microscopic level and then really being able to use that power and that love in every area of your life. Yeah. When we talk about unstoppable love, that's not only in personal, social, romantic relationships, it can translate to work. 
Ab- oh, absolutely. If yeah. it doesn't, if it doesn't, then why would you keep working there? I don't know. <laughs> like, That's a great question. Yeah, <laughs> I want to be part of a team where I know the people that I'm working with love me and I love them and they got my back. And I, also, I want to work in a place where if I make a mistake, people are going to assume that I'm trying to do the best that I can. And it was a dumb mistake mm-hmm. instead of people that are going to rip me yeah. to shreds. And I've had that happen. It's incredibly painful. I don't want to work in that environment. I want to work in an environment where they know that I got their back. I know they got my back. I could do great things. Like whew, we could, Together, we're stronger. You know, I, I don't want to walk the road of life by myself. Yeah, so I know when you came back from the trenches of Katrina, you left with a burning question, and that was, how is it that some people become unstoppable? And I'm curious how you answer that question. Well, it comes back to those two napkin okay. questions. Mm-hmm. Am I powerful or powerless? Am I going to be a taker or a giver? And by the way, I would say that a powerful giver is by definition what unstoppable love looks like. Mm. It all ties back in together. Like, what? How will I choose to live my life? Am I willing to lay it down for other people? Or am I going to go, nah, it's, it's all about me. It's, it's all about the Dan Diamond show. Eh, that's kind of boring after a while. It's, more, it's way more fun to invest in other people and, mm. to, and to give and, and to experience love. Do you-, you know, that's one, of the, that's one of the things that made our friend Danny Friedland such a great guy, was he had this incredible love for people. And he was asking great questions all the time. But we had Lis- such Yes, and deeply listening. Oh, yeah. What matters most now? Yeah, you know, we talked about that question a lot. What matters most now? What does love look like? How do we, how do we put hands and feet on what love is and show up in a way where people know that we have nowhere else to be? We're just there for them. We're going to show up with unstoppable love that says, I have the power to make a difference, and I'm going to choose to be a giver. And I don't care who gets the credit. No. You know, that's, that's some seriously cool stuff. Yeah, so do you think one trait or scenario that typically inhibits a person from being able to successfully cope is not asking the right question? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the difference, I'll give you an example. And and this is one that I uh, ran into when I was working with the hospital system and they were in the bottom 25th percentile for patients falling out of bed. Mm. And the federal government dings you financially when you're in the bottom 25th percentile. And so they did what most hospitals would do. They formed a fall committee. <laughs> Whoa, what do you do at a fall committee? You guys fall down? Yeah, like, what, what, what do you do? And the, what they came up with was mandatory nurse rounds. What's the opposite of patients falling out of bed? Getting out of bed. Exactly. And most people say patients staying in bed. And that's not the right answer. The right answer is great mobility. Ooh, I feel like I have a thriving mindset. Yeah, you do. Because yeah, I went straight do. to getting yeah. up. And when you ask that question, your eyebrows go, whoo, and you're smiling right now. And nobody else can see you except for me. Yeah. <laughs> you're smiling because, the, because the, the energy level goes up. So if, you're, if you find yourself in a situation and, you, and you're asking a question that's like, how am I going to get through this? Oh, is me. That's like the victim kind of question, as opposed to a thriver question that says, what does great mobility look like? And when you ask the right question, 
they're what we call generative questions. They generate enthusiasm. They generate energy. They generate people coming alongside you to say, oh, I'm in. I want to be on that. Who wants to be on the mobility committee? Physical therapy, occupational therapy, the nurses, the doctors, the unit clerk, maybe even some family members. Who wants to be on the fall committee? Uh, are you paying me? Did so, this transformation of fall to growth and helping patients get out of bed happen at Katrina? I, yeah, I think the, the, the question was, for me, how do I get people out of this situation mm. into a place where they could be safe. When we're, when we're in, in triage mode, the question is, how do I rate people on their severity and get the sickest people the help that they need as quickly as I can? If they're too sick and I know they're not going to make it, we don't spend a lot of resources on those people. It's the people that are in critical condition, but we think we can save that we that we try to get out. And, and then, you know, treating everybody with love. The hardest one that I ever did, by the way, yeah. was Haiti. I cried for, for months after I came home from Haiti. And my buddy won't go anymore after Haiti. He said, dude, I'm done. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's too hard. It was just, it was brutal. Because we saw so much suffering. In a storm, people can at least get a chance to get safe. And we saw a lot of people that were poor people that couldn't evacuate, that didn't have access to their medications, that couldn't go to kidney dialysis, that were having heart attacks and gallbladders and all that stuff. But in Haiti, oh man, it's crush injuries and little kids and all kinds of stuff. And that's Dan, how ooh. do you go from experiencing such a horrible and devastating environment and just being exposed to all of that and then coming back to America and being exposed to reality TV and the Kardashians of the world and just superficiality. I mean, on a different level, I even get exhausted from that where maybe I come back from a retreat and then I'm back in Los Angeles and I'm seeing just people only care about, you know, Chanel bags or what they're wearing. It can feel lonely oh, when, you, when you have an experience like that and you come back to the real world and people didn't experience what you did and how, how do you relate to people and how do you get to a better space where you can always cherish the moments that you had and reflect upon them, but then also have them inspire you, but not feel lonely, which I think is inevitable. But Yeah. And it's hard if, if people haven't done the this type of work, like it's hard for me to have a conversation and say, you know, here's this thing that happened with this five-year-old kid and it rips my heart out. And I, if I tell you the story of what happened to this five-year-old kid that I met when I was down there, you would probably cry, but you wouldn't experience the level of um, disgust and resentment that, and all the rage, the, the storm of emotion that comes in when I think about that story because you weren't there. You'd feel it because it's a horrible, tragic, stinking story, and the kid died, and he didn't need to die. It was a mismanagement by one of the doctors that was down there that was on a different team that was, you know. But anyway, it was like, how do I process that? I processed that by getting together with my buddy Bob that went down there with me, and we went out for breakfast, and we sat in this nice hotel in the restaurant and wept. 
eating breakfast. And I'm sure the people around us were going, what's with the old guys, man? They're a mess over there. They're all crying and wiping their faces and stuff. But we we just had to get it out. Yeah. You know, and there's there's been times since then when I've told the stories around this um, that I get all choked up. And, I, and it's okay because it's not, what happened was not right. Um, and it's, I need to be able to give myself that space to process. And when I come back from an event, like that from a deployment that's brutal. I deploy with medical teams international based out of Portland. Um, they do a very good job of keeping, of taking care of us and they provide counseling and, you know, whatever we need when we come back to be able to re-enter. Re-entering is hard. You know, I mean, I, I talked to, to Anderson Cooper during Katrina. He called me and he was in, um, and I don't think he would mind if I tell you this story. He, it was the weekend, and he went, he went to Houston to get away. And he called me up, and he says, Diamond, I'm, uh, I'm at Walmart. And my first thought was, Anderson Cooper's at Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> what is wrong with this picture? Um, he said, um, I'm standing here in front of Walmart, and I can't go in. Do you think I'm okay? He said, yeah, man, I think you're like the rest of us. You know, the amount of suffering that we've seen and we've experienced, we've seen it firsthand and we've been up to our eyeballs in this suffering for the last couple of weeks. And then you go to Walmart and it's all supposed to be just ding, 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 everything's fine. It's not fine. It's not fine. You're okay. He goes, yeah. Okay, thanks. I just want to make sure I was okay. I said, yeah, you're good. You're like the rest of us. So we have, you know, we have to come alongside each other. And, and, and you know, if, you, if you've been through um, a, a difficult or if you have a friend that's been through something difficult, and we, we, you and I talked about this briefly when I saw you in San Diego, is how do you respond when your friends are suffering? Love this question. And this, is, this is like, I did a lot of thinking about this because my, one of my best friends lost his daughter when she was 19 to a drunk driver driving the wrong way on I-5. Oh and like, what do you say? I just went over to his house. We weren't that close at the time, but I just went to his house and sat on the couch. You know, can I make you a peanut butter sandwich? <laughs> and we started talking about all the stuff that happened after his, his daughter died. You know, the people would come up and they'd say, well, you know, you, you got five. You, you have five kids, so you still have four left. Mm-hmm. Like, what? Or, you know, you could adopt. What? It's just like. It wasn't acknowledging what no, happened? no. Well, I, I, what I figured is there's three ways that people respond when somebody's suffering. The first way they respond is they avoid them. And, and I've done this. I think we've all done this where you tell yourself the story of, well, I don't, I don't want to interfere. I want to give them space or however we justify I hear that to way too much. Yeah. It, you know what that is? I don't it's a way that. for me to protect myself so I don't have to experience their suffering. Because it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and it's painful. So I just will say, uh, yeah, the, re- the, end, the end result is a gap. Absolutely. Because I was not there when they needed me. And a year later or whenever, I can't just show up and say, gosh, sorry about that thing. They'll say, yeah, it's okay, man. I appreciate you it. But I you wasn't weren't there, there for me and I, I needed you. Yeah. So there will always be a gap. The second way that, that I've seen myself respond and other people um, is to show up with answers. Like, really? Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to have answers, right? Oh, well, you could do this. You could do that. Whatever. You know, 
somebody has a miscarriage, you say, well, you'll probably be able to get pregnant again in another couple of months. What? Or you could adopt. What? Like, you know, or whatever. It's, people say stupid stuff. The reason that we, we do this is because we want to make the pain go away because we don't want to feel the pain. We don't want them to feel the pain. Mm-hmm. So we say stupid stuff. And they can end up resenting it. Also, a lot of men tend to try to be, try For to have sure all the answers. Do. For you sure know, we do. That's yeah, Mr. Fix very it. familiar to me with, you know, my mm-hmm. relationship with my dad always wants to fix everything, but that doesn't necessarily help. Yeah. Well, and, and I've done it too. You just haven't come to me with your problems yet. Cause yeah. I'll fix it. You just <laughs> let me know. Your dad and I have a lot in common. This is good. Yeah. Your dad's a cool dude, by the way. Um, the third way that I respond is the best. And that is, and it took me a while to find this word again. I love words. Oof. Attend. Like, can I show up ready to be nowhere else? And just, I love the way Brene Brown says it. Am I willing to sit in the suck with somebody else? You know, like with, with my buddy Greg, when he lost his daughter, I said, you know, can I just sit on your couch? By the way, can I make you a peanut butter sandwich or something? I'm not going anywhere, dude. I don't have any answers for you. Um, this is a horrible situation. I'm just going to be here with you. It's so much more helpful to have people that show up to just say, I'm here and I care about you. And I don't have any answers, but I love you and I'm, and I'm not going anywhere. It's just so in alignment with people in their 20s and dealing with friendships and wanting to be there for a friend when they're in pain and not really knowing how to or what to do. Yeah. Powerful. yeah, I mean, the world, the world is oftentimes incredibly challenging. Um, and, you know, if, if you respond to a disaster, whether it's um, one of your friends loses somebody to COVID mm. or you get in a car wreck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just saying. Uh, do you need a bunch of people to show up and give you answers? No, you just want a friend no. to say, I, I got you and I love you and I care about you. Um, which goes back to, I have the power to make a difference and I'm going to be a giver. I'm just going to show up and say, I got you. I'm not going anywhere. I love you. Unstoppable love is, I'm on your couch and I'll make you a peanut butter sandwich. That's what it looks like. Amen. <laughs> uh, Dr. Dan Diamond. Okay, so I would love to introduce you to Syllabus Steps, which is really a time for us to take in what we've learned from your experiences and how we can actually integrate your insight into our personal lives. So what specific books, tools, resources, or practices that have helped you and your following cope through traumatic experiences? And I know we, we really touched about this in terms of the two questions, as well as some books that you have mentioned throughout our conversation. But if we can just summarize really how we 20-something-year-olds can really integrate your wisdom into our daily lives to cope with our personal adversities, challenges, or trauma in order to become unstoppable. Yeah, I'd say play a light game. Play a light game. Our <laughs> our mascot uh, during Katrina was rubber chicken. And people would walk by and they'd go, they're, you know, they're carrying their bags. It's all their belongings they have left. They're just all slouched over, walking along, going, my life sucks, this is horrible, it's terrible. And they'd look up and they'd go, <laughs> is that a rubber chicken? And we go, yeah, that's a rubber chicken. And they go, <laughs> Why do you have a rubber chicken? Because it was so out of place. And I said, so you do that. And they go, dude, thanks, man. And they would stand up tall and walk out to the helicopter and get evacuated. You know, can you play a light game? It's not making fun of their their pain. I'm sitting in the suck with them. 
but it's just a reminder of you're going to get through it. You're going to be all right. So, you know, if, if you're suffering or going through a tough time right now, um, find some people that got you. That will be there with you, that will attend with you. Play a lighter game. Realize you're going to get through this out the other end. And if you can find a little bit of humor in the process of it, I've found that to be helpful. Um, you know, it's all about the chicken, is what we say. But, you know, it's like, can I, can I come back to pausing, noticing, choosing, picking the right mindset, showing up as a thriver? Can I? come back and ask myself over and over again what is it what does unstoppable love look like right now what would it look like if i got three of my friends together and we mobilized in a practical way unstoppable love in our community what might we be able to pull off what if we were looking at this a year from now we're going tang that's the most incredible year we did this thing what's that look like maybe it's something simple that nobody ever sees never underestimate the power of somebody that says, I have the power to make a difference. It's not about me and I don't care who gets the credit. Dan, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for shining so much light onto Regardless and for sharing your wisdom, heartfelt experiences and intelligence with me and all of my friends. I really feel so grateful to have you in my close circle. You are truly a superhuman. Also, I would love to dedicate this episode to Daniel Friedland, our close family friend. Yeah. He's a hero in the medical and emotional intelligence world. Rest in peace, Danny. Thank yeah. you for bringing Dan into my life and into my family's life. I truly vow to forever share your tools, wisdom, and love with the rest of the world. You can find Dr. Dan Diamond's syllabus steps in the episode description, as well as his LinkedIn website and contact information. I've also provided Dr. Daniel Friedland's YouTube channel, which shares Daniel's personal experience of trauma and how he was able to turn a devastating and life-altering experience being diagnosed with stage four brain cancer into living a loving life and embracing the unknown with an open heart and mind. You can also purchase Daniel Friedland's book, Leading Well from Within, a neuroscience and mindfulness-based framework for conscious leadership from my episode notes. Much love, my superhumans. And remember, regardless, you got this. Dan, thank you. Thanks, Guy. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you. I think you're incredibly cool. So awesome. We did it. Thanks for listening to Regardless. I hope you've learned something from this month's soul conversation and will apply it to your own syllabus. Join me next month for a new guest, a new tool, and a new perspective. If you found value in this podcast, please empower your tribe by sharing, leaving a comment, review, and or subscribe. Catch new episodes on the second and fourth week of every month on all major audio podcast platforms. For more information about my life and updates about the podcast, head to my Instagram at Skylar Sorkin. Thank you for tuning in to Regardless. Now go kick some ass.